The scripture reading this morning is from Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see Jesus, uh, whom he was there. But on account of the crowd, he could not see him because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He had gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. If you have your Bible, take it out. Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke 19. Looking at verses 1 through 10, as Bill has read for us, this is a passage that if you've been around church or going to Bible school or going to Sunday school as a kid, you've probably heard about Zacchaeus, right? He's a guy, we sing his song. Uh, We won't sing it this morning, but we typically, uh, you know, you've sung a song about Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and the song just continues on from there. If you want to sing on your way home, that would be great. Just don't maybe start while we're together, Um, but it is a story that many of us know. Some of you may not. Um, It's a passage of scripture where Jesus is walking up to a man who is maybe doesn't deserve to be picked or chosen, and Jesus chooses him. The title of this morning's sermon is Jesus Chooses You. Jesus Chooses You. When we think about getting chosen, this upcoming Sunday we're going to be watching, those of you who will watch it, watch the Super Bowl, and it'll be of two guys... Two quarterbacks, um, Cam Newton and Peyton Manning, both of which were drafted number one in the NFL draft. And I believe, according to ESPN, and I think they get it all right, but according to ESPN, they said uh, this is the first time ever that there'll be a Super Bowl played where both starting quarterbacks were drafted number one in the NFL draft. Uh, what is the NFL draft or, or a draft for any sports uh, team? What, what, what is that? That's when, as a, a college player, or maybe like in baseball, a lot of high school guys do this. And as a college, say, let's take football, for instance, as a college football player, you play three or four years and you just try to work so hard and you're, 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 you try to do, do everything you can possibly do to be good. And then finally, um, it comes that time where you declare for the draft and you work really hard. You go to these workouts, you, you try to, to show off for these NFL teams, hoping that sometime in April... There'll be an NFL team, the commissioner of the NFL will come up to the microphone and say, with the uh, second pick in the NFL draft 2016, the such and such team chooses, and then hopefully your name will be called. In the NFL, there's seven rounds of that. 
Seven rounds of guys who get chosen. And you only can hope as a player that you uh, get your name called out that day because of all the hard work and dedication you've put in. But though none of us will probably never, or maybe most of us will never experience something like that, we still, um, the idea of getting chosen resonates with almost all of us because either you've heard about this or at some point know of a guy who... Um, had a box, and in that box, one day, he decided to open that box and show it to a girl, and it was a diamond ring, and he would propose to her, right? What, what, is, what, is, what is that? That's called engagement. That's called getting engaged, which is a time in somebody's life where a guy and a girl, they meet, they start dating, they realize they love each other, they fall in love, so the guy... Uh, realizes either he needs the, to propose to her or maybe she's saying, you better propose to me or I'm leaving, whatever it is, you know, that can be different things. But he realizes he wants to marry this girl, so he goes and he, he talks to the girl's dad and says, hey, well, you know, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And she said, and the dad says, that's fine, you know. And he goes and he, he goes and picks out this beautiful ring and, um, you know, he has to open up a mortgage on it, but he picks it out, you know, and everything about the ring is awesome. So he decides he's going to do this so perfectly. So he, he buys that ring. He then goes and he, uh, he takes her on a date. Maybe it's the first place they ever went, you know, on a date and they go out to eat and they leave that date, you know, and they're walking through this nice little park area. And she's like, oh, you know did you realize this is the first place where we're on a date? And he's like, oh, really? And really, he knows, you know, but he says, he says, yeah, 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 I think I recall that. And she starts holding his hand, and she's like, why are your hands shaking? And he's like, I'm cold. She's like, it's July. What's going on with you? And right before, right before she's about to find out, she looks the other way, and as soon as she looks back, she sees this guy down on one knee, and he's got this box open with this ring, and he says the words, you complete me. No, he doesn't say that. He says the words, he says the words, will you marry me? And at that moment when he says, will you marry me? What's he saying? He's saying, I choose you. He said, I choose you. I want you to be my wife. And in this moment following, hopefully, the girl looks back at him and in her yes, she's looking at him saying, I choose you. You see, why, do, why would people choose somebody to be married to? Because they, they love them, because he's handsome, she's pretty, because they get along together, because uh, they're funny, because um, they have the greatest time, because he thinks she's the, the, the best girl in the world, and she thinks he's the most amazing guy in the world. You see, those things are chosen because of the good attributes that the other person, the other mate has, right? That's, that's how our world works. You get chosen um, in the NFL draft, not because you're just such a good guy. No, because you've performed well. Because you have something to offer that team. You get chosen for the promotion at your job because you have something to offer that company. You get chosen by, by, by a, a spouse because of uh, something you can offer them or because they have something you desire. That's how our world works. 
But see, that's what makes this passage and passages like these so difficult to understand because Zacchaeus gets chosen not because he had anything to offer Jesus, but because Jesus had everything to offer to him. You see, um, Zacchaeus is living in a world where he is a guy who's not a good guy. He's not a guy who deserves to be picked, the exception of maybe going to jail, but yet Jesus still picks him. Every one of you have gone through something in your life where you've either been chosen or not chosen. Maybe um, it's your job and you, uh, you feel like you deserve that promotion because you've been with the company longer and because you've done more things, but that guy down the hallway, he's the one that got it. And you feel like you were shafted. Maybe it's a relationship you've come out of and that relationship is broken. And you feel like that no one will ever desire to choose you again. Maybe if you're in here and you're in school, um, it's, the, it's, it's this idea that you think the, your friends or those people that you're classmates with, they always get chosen for something, whether it's academics, sports, uh, friends, and you're always kind of left to the side. Many of you uh, sit in here this morning and something like that has happened to you in your life before or is happening now. In our passage this morning, we're going to see that despite who we are, despite what you've done in your life, Jesus chooses you. At the end of this message this morning, uh, everyone in here, if you desire, will have an opportunity to respond. If you sit in here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're an unbeliever, you, you, you have nothing to offer, you come in here and you say, uh, Adrian, I appreciate um, you saying this stuff, and it's, it's probably, you probably mean well, but man, you don't realize who I am. You don't realize what I did, what I've done. You don't even realize what I did last night, man. If you knew, then you would turn your back and not even preach to me. And let me say this morning that that is so far from the truth. Because there's so many people sitting in here this morning, including me, standing up here on this platform that could say, outside of the fact that Jesus, out of his love, out of his mercy, chose me, I would be saying the same thing. I had nothing to offer God. There's much that I could say, look, let me tell you what I've done. Let me tell you where I've been. But also, let me tell you who I am now because Jesus has saved me. And at the end of this morning, you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to receive Christ for forgiveness. If you so desire that, and God is calling you to that, the second group of people in here this morning are believers, followers of Christ. You come in here and you know the Lord Jesus. You have a relationship with God, and you think, how will a message like this help me with what I'm going through today? Because when we see these two truths in just a second, and we see this passage, we understand that if Jesus chooses us despite what we've done and who we are, when we grasp that and understand that God saved us in our sin and we are now his child, our identity is in Jesus. Our identity isn't the bad things we've done. Our identity isn't our job. Our identity isn't our family. Our identity is Jesus because he has saved us. You can walk out of here this morning with, um, 
with strength, with joy, with hope, because you remember that Jesus chooses you. So let's jump into the text. First truth this morning, Jesus chooses you despite you. This uh, passage is what we call a narrative. It's a story that Luke is telling. So we're going to read it this morning like a story. It says, he, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. We've got to go ahead and stop there. When Jesus came into town, it was always a big deal. Right? What, what, what do we see? We see uh, in our culture today, we see the paparazzi, man. They go after, when LeBron walks into town, what happens? They're taking pictures of him. Um, they're interviewing him after games. What can he do? He can dunk a basketball. You know, um, let's say the Grammys, I think, are coming up soon. You have Adele. You know, I'm sure the Grammys will be all over her, but she says one word, you know, and it's hello, and everybody's all about that. You know, but the paparazzi's all about that. But when Jesus comes into town, when Jesus comes into town, people flock to him because they understand he's not just the guy who can, who can dunk a basketball or, or somebody who can sing well. He's somebody who can change my life, and people flock to him. They run to him, and we see that here because uh, in verse 3, it says Zacchaeus was seeking to see who he was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. So we first off see that there's a large crowd near Jesus, people who were probably good, people who probably had good jobs, people who were probably moral people, people who were honest people, people who uh, of all uh, colors, shapes, sizes, everybody would have been there. But then Luke introduces us to another person. And his name is Zacchaeus. It says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Those of you who've been around church for some time probably um, know that a tax collector wasn't necessarily a good guy. What was he? He was uh, a tax collector, would have been a Jew, but the Jews at this time were governed by the Romans. So most Jews didn't like the Romans because they, they governed them and ruled them, but a tax collector was a Jew who would take up taxes for the Romans. And the, Romans, the Roman official might would say, hey, you tax collector over here, you just make sure from your little district that you take up $100. That's the amount of taxes we need. Um, so that tax collector had to make sure he took up at least $100. But what could that tax collector do? He could take up as much as he wanted. And if the people weren't willing to pay him, the Roman officials would come in and they would discipline those people. So in other words, the, the tax collector was a turncoat because he was taking advantage of his own people for the Roman government. So let's just say this, Zacchaeus and any other tax collector, they weren't liked very good. Those guys, nobody would have liked them because they were selfish, they were cheaters, they were turncoats. And Zacchaeus, it says, was a chief tax collector. What does that mean? He wasn't the guy running the little tax booth. He was the guy who owned about 10 of them, and he was sitting in the back counting all his money, sort of like a mob boss. That's who Zacchaeus was. So he was a guy who not only took advantage of his people, then he took advantage of the tax collectors that were taking up money. He was a bad guy. Often we read scripture, and I think we, we move too quickly to get to the part where we see that Zacchaeus and Jesus had a conversation. We've got to understand something first. Zacchaeus was not a good man. He was a man people didn't like. He was a man people despised. He was a man who was a cheater. He was a turncoat. He was a traitor. And Luke sets it up for us. But Zacchaeus does something that's very telling in this passage. It says he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Verse 3. It says he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short. 
It's a small stature, but essentially it's saying poor Zacchaeus was a short guy. What was Zacchaeus doing, though? It says he was seeking Jesus. He was, he was looking for him. Zacchaeus wanted hope. Zacchaeus wanted hope because, think about this, he had as much money as he wanted. He had power. He would have had influence. He would have had everything that this world says may give you your deepest desires, but he was still wanting something more. Zacchaeus was still left longing for something more. He wanted hope. He wanted purpose. He wanted joy in his life. Let me ask you this question this morning. Are some of you sitting in here with the exact same thoughts? Maybe uh, you have much. Maybe you have little. It doesn't matter how much you have. You're looking for purpose in life. You're looking for, for hope. You're looking for joy. You're looking for peace. And maybe you're looking in all the wrong places because outside of Jesus, you're never going to have any of that. Zacchaeus is proof of that. But he had made up his mind, guess what? I'm going to find this guy Jesus. And I'm going to find him any way that I possibly can. There's only two problems. There was a crowd and he was short. Why is the crowd a problem? One, if you're a man like Zacchaeus and people dislike you, that's probably strong or probably weak there. People hated Zacchaeus. Uh, you don't go into a crowd. Why would you do that? You know, why, why, why would you risk having somebody kind of give you the nudge or punch in the face or maybe even take a knife out and get you? Why, why would you take that risk? Because guess what? If somebody uh, were to see Zacchaeus stabbed or punched, do you think they're going to step in? No, they're going to say he deserves that. But Zacchaeus said, I don't even care, man. I got to see this Jesus so bad. I, I'm willing to look dumb and take my chances to get to him. So he steps out into a crowd. That's his first obstacle. Second obstacle, poor guy was short. He just simply couldn't see, you know. He was like, I can't see because there's so many people. So either it came down to this. Jesus was not going to be worth his time or he's going to have to find another way to see him. Jesus was not going to be worth his time or he was going to have to find another way to see him. Essentially, he was asking this question. Is Jesus worth going through obstacles to see? Here in, in, in the 21st century America, uh, I, I believe that most things that we do in life are good, but oftentimes we set up so many obstacles that are, that are in our way in order to spend time not only with the Lord, but to spend quality time with our family, to spend time uh, reaching out to lost people. There's so many obstacles we put in the way, many of which are good, that keep us from spending time with the Lord. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says this, quality time comes from quantity time. Simple statement, quality time comes from quantity time. What's he saying to that? He's saying that if you want quality time with God, it's not just going to be that little 15-minute, 20-minute window in the morning. It may happen, but it's not only going to be that. If you want quality time with your family, you don't just put it on your calendar at 4.30 this afternoon till 5, quality time with family, and then expect that to be quality. It may be, but then it may not. Quality time comes from quantity time, and we here in America and in our church and in our own lives need to ask ourselves, what obstacles am I putting in place of spending more dedicated, devoted time with the Lord? What do I need to maybe remove? Maybe it's not removing something totally. Maybe it's just saying, hey, I need to wake up 10 minutes earlier in the morning 
so that I'll be 10 minutes more awake to spend time with God. Maybe it's saying, hey, instead of doing uh, whatever it is that I do on Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday evening, I kind of maybe take that off my calendar so I can spend more quality time with my family because parents, you set the priority for how your kids are going to spend the rest of their life. Whether it's, whether it's with um, time with the Lord, time in church, with the way they're going to spend time with their family, you set the priority and your kids see that and experience that. But Zacchaeus was desperate. There were obstacles in his way and he was desperate, but he wanted to see Jesus, so he was ta- willing to take huge risks to do so. So what did he do? He ran. Which first off, a guy of, of his kind of caliber in their culture, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a real cool thing to run. That wasn't the cool thing. That wasn't the exciting thing to do. You didn't do that. Um, because for Zacchaeus to be willing to run to see somebody is for him to say like, hey, I'm, I'm actually, I'm kind of lesser than this guy. Because I'm willing to run. And secondly, he was willing to climb a tree. Like, there's very few people, if anybody, I thought hard this week. I'm like, who, who, would I, who would I climb this oak tree out back to see? And I can't think of anybody. Maybe there is. But Zacchaeus was willing to climb a tree and look foolish just so he could catch a glimpse of Jesus. But see, we do funny things whenever we're desperate. I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, um, <clears throat> I was with... One of my cousins, he, his name's Elton Allison. He taught at the high school for years. And I was with him, and we were coon hunting up on Curtis Creek. All right? We were up there, and I'd, I'd done this countless times. I mean, we went almost every night. And we, we were heading back to the truck one night, and we kind of got in this thicket, you know, like a little area where there's like briars way high and, and just a lot of thick trees in there. And I couldn't see anything. All right, I had my flashlight. And um, all I would do is, like, if I got way behind Elton, because I was kind of slow in the woods, you know, I got way behind him, I would look to see if I saw his light. Well, eventually, like, I didn't see it. So instead of just continuing to walk the way I saw him walk, I decided to stop, cut my light off, and just start screaming, okay? That's That's the only thing that went through my mind. If you scream loud enough, you know, he will hear you. Granted, I, I didn't think about the fact that if I scream loud enough, maybe, you know, the panther up in the woods might come down and get me. I don't know, man. But, like, I just decided, man, I'm going to scream as loud as I can scream. And I started crying, and I just, I, I thought my life was over. You know, like, I really thought it's ending right here. Curtis Creek, man, a bear's going to come get me. I'm done, nine years old. Until all of a sudden I see Elton step around a tree and say, what in the world are you doing? It's like, I, I said, I was looking for you. And he said, I was like five steps ahead of you. He said, it's so thick in here, you can't see it. At that point, I didn't care because I, I knew I was saved. You know what I mean? Like, I knew it, my life wasn't over. But in that moment of desperation, at eight, nine, ten years old, however old I was, in that moment, I just started yelling because I was willing to do whatever it took to have my life, I thought, saved. But we often do funny things when we are desperate. And Zacchaeus did the same thing. Because he was desperate for Jesus. My prayer this week for myself has been, and, and, and for our church, for you, as I've been preparing this message, as I've been thinking through this, is that I get to a point where Jesus isn't just something I want or someone that I kind of want to be with, but someone that I'm so desperate for that when I wake up in the morning, yeah, I can function day-to-day life, but I say, Jesus, my life is not going to be the same today without you. I need you today. That's my desire for myself. That's my desire for you. Is that we become desperate 
for Christ. We desire him so much that we want him more than anything else that doesn't matter what obstacles in our way, we're going to remove that so that we can meet with him, so that we can see him and do his will. So Jesus comes to the tree and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down out of the tree and I want to hang out at your house today. So before we even go on here, we've got to understand something. Um, of all the people in the crowd, good moral people, um, people who thought they were good, people who maybe had it together, Jesus comes to that place and looks and points his finger at Zacchaeus and says, I want to see you. I want to see you. I want you to come down here. Notice something crucial here. Maybe he had heard about him, but probably not. Jesus knew his name. Let me say to you this morning, um, if you sit in here and you think that you are out of God's reach because of who you are or because of the things that you've done, Jesus knows your name. He knows who you are. Maybe you sit and you're like, man, but you don't understand what I've done. It doesn't matter. Jesus knows your name and you are not too far out of his reach. But the thing that we've got to get is Zacchaeus' response. He could have just said, I don't know about all that, man. This tree's kind of high. Or he could have got there and said, Jesus, I don't know why you want to hang with me. I think you should go to somebody else's house. No, he got down that tree quickly. And it says he received him joyfully. See, Zacchaeus, was, he was excited. He was pumped. Like, I've never heard of a story. Maybe it's happened, but I've never heard of a story of, of a woman getting proposed to. And then, and then while he's, the man's on his knee and he says, will you marry me? She looks at him and says, I guess. I, I'm like, I've never heard of that. What typically happens? She starts shaking and she puts her hands over her face and she's crying and she's saying, yes, 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 you know. And like it's a Kodak moment and all this stuff, you know. And like that's what usually happens because she's pumped. He's pumped. Everybody's excited. That's what Zacchaeus was like. He was excited that Jesus would walk through and notice him. Not only notice him, but say, Zacchaeus, I want to I hang out with you. And what we see in our next truth is that changed the way Zacchaeus lived. Jesus chooses you, so live like it. Of all the people Jesus could have chosen, he, he chose the guy who probably deserved it, seemed like he deserved it the least. And what happens? Verse 7. It says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. Who's the they there? The they um, are people in the crowd who are, 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 are maybe good Jews, some Pharisees, people who think they have it all together, people, some scribes, people who uh, know the law and do the law. They looked and it says that they grumbled. What does that mean? They said, do you see who Jesus is hanging out with? Like, can you believe he's hanging out with that guy? Like, when he came to town, shouldn't he have been talking to us? I mean, like, we're the ones who keep the law. We're, we're the ones who have it all together. Shouldn't he have been talking to us? Instead, Jesus walked over there to a tree and points his finger and says, Zacchaeus, I want to hang out with you. Because Jesus didn't come for people who think they have it together. Jesus came to save sinners. He himself said it in three of the four Gospels, Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. Jesus said this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The glory of the gospel is the fact that Jesus didn't come for people who have it together. Jesus came for people who realize they need him. Jesus came for people who realize they need saving and they need a savior. But see, this is offensive 
often in, 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 in America. This can be offensive in any culture because oftentimes we think that we've got it together. Like, honestly, we, we think like, some of you may even be thinking like, well, why do I need a Savior? I'm a good person. The fact is, the Bible's very clear that if you've broken one of God's laws, you're a lawbreaker, therefore you are condemned to God's wrath and you need saving. Every one of us in this room is in that place. But Ephesians 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, showed how much he loved us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This church, our, uh, us personally, this church corporately, we've got to remember that while we're always growing in our walk with God, we can't remember, we have to remember, excuse me, what we're saved from. We must remember and must be a people who come in here who don't, try to act like we have it together. Rather, we come in and we say, look, we know we don't have it together. And those of you sitting in here this morning who are not followers of Christ and you think you look around and just see a bunch of church people who have it together, that's not at all what it is. You see people who are still hurt and people who still suffer, but yet we just have, we know the source of joy. We know where to find forgiveness. I've heard a pastor say this, that I'm just one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find bread. That's who we are as the church. We're not perfect. We don't have it together. We are people who are broken, but yet we know the one who can fix it. That's who we are. And as the church, we can't forget that. If you're sitting in here this morning and you feel like you don't belong, let me say this, you do. You're in the right place. You're in the right place because uh, none of us belong. But the fact is Jesus chose us. Therefore, because of who he is, we can belong. Not because of who we are, but this church, us, we exist we exist to uh, not be like the they who would ha- think they have it together, but instead we exist to live lives like Jesus where we go to people who are broken. We go to people who are hurting. We invite people who uh, need to hear the gospel. We invite people who are suffering. We go to those people because we want them to know the source of joy. We want them to know the person who can give them forgiveness. 19th and 20th century uh, missionary C.T. Studd, phenomenal name. Wish I had a name like that. C.T. Studd uh, was a missionary to China, India, and the Congo, and he once stated this. Someone to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. You see, um, the Pharisees, the they who grumbled, would have said, no, no, we, we have it together. We've got it right. But see, Jesus, Jesus was... The example that C.T. Studd took whenever he went up to the person who didn't deserve to have his name called out and pointed at him and say, Zacchaeus, come here, I want to hang out with you. You see, as a people of God, that's who we are called to be. Jesus then, in verse 8, after he's hanging out with Zacchaeus, We see in verse 8, we see here, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. First off, Jesus calls Zacchaeus Lord. It's very crucial. He says, uh, after just some time with him, he says, Hey, you're now, you're the controller of my life. If you're willing to accept me, I'm willing to do whatever you ask. Notice Jesus didn't command Zacchaeus to do anything. Jesus didn't say, Zacchaeus, now, now you better, if, if, if you want me to like you, you better go out and restore some money. No. Zacchaeus chose to do that because God, in human flesh, Jesus Christ, chose to show him grace and mercy. 
So what did Zacchaeus do? He doesn't say, hey, I'll give half of my profit. No, he says, I'll give half of my goods. You've got to think, this guy probably had a lot. He said, I'll give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've defrauded somebody, I'll pay it back fourfold. Here's what that means. By law, it was only uh, Zacchaeus only had to pay back the amount he had defrauded times one-fifth. So in other words, if Zacchaeus had defrauded somebody of $100, he was supposed to pay them $100 plus one-fifth, which would be 120 bucks. But because of the radical generosity that Jesus has shown to him, he said, look, I can't just stop with that. If this guy's willing to pick me and save me, I'm willing to go above and beyond what's expected of me for him. So I'm not only going to give half my stuff to the poor, I'm going to pay back fourfold what I've defrauded people. See, when we understand, we understand, not, not, not out of guilt, think that we've got to serve God, but when we understand the grace that has been shown and given to us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were undeserving, when we didn't deserve anything, when we grasped that, that then changes radically how we live our life. Granted, I may not all be like Zacchaeus. When I was nine and, and, and received Jesus at nine years old, I didn't have a lot of money to give away. So I didn't all of a sudden start giving half of my goods. Uh, the transformation may vary. But the fact is that when Jesus Christ takes hold of your life and changes your heart because of the overflow of generosity, that begins to change how we live. That must change how we live. Let me ask you this question. How has God's generosity to you changed how you live? What's God showing you, or maybe prodding you, to do because of what he's already done for you? See, there's one truth here that we've got to get at the end of this passage. Zacchaeus, his life changed not because it was forced to, but because if Jesus saved him from all the wrong things he had done, from being uh, somebody who defrauded people, from being a liar, from being um, a thief, from being all that, if Jesus saved him from that, how then could he continue in that lifestyle? If Jesus saved him from that, how then could he continue in that same lifestyle that gets to the truth that belief and repentance, belief in who Jesus is and what he's done, goes hand in hand with repentance, which is turning from the sin that we are saved from. You see, we're not, we're not saved. People don't come to Christ because they do good or because they decide, hey, I'm going to start doing better and Jesus is going to like me. No. But when we understand that Jesus has saved me from that old lifestyle, there's no way that I can go back to it if I truly understand what I've been saved from. This doesn't mean that struggle won't exist because we're still human beings. But this means that our lifestyle, when Christ takes hold of our heart and the gospel grips us, we don't go on living the same way we did. Jesus chooses us, therefore we live like it. Lastly, Jesus gives us his, his mission for why he came. This is why he chose Zacchaeus. This is why he, he before he healed a blind beggar, this is why all through the gospels he does what he does. It says this, today salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek 
and save the lost. What, what is Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate rescuer. Because um, Zacchaeus was lost. He had no way to, to have a relationship with God. Zacchaeus wouldn't have had salvation. Rather, he would have had condemnation. But instead, Jesus came to seek him out. Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus out. And essentially, Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. How would he do that, though? Not much, not much further in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus will do some other things. And then eventually, he'll get to this point where he's in a garden. And these men, because Jesus was betrayed, would come arrest him. And they would arrest Jesus and they would take him to a trial, but it wasn't a a fair trial. The trial was already set up. Jesus would then go to trial and they would find him guilty of calling himself king of the Jews. Guilty of something that was true. But the people of his day didn't like it. So what did they do? They said, "Um, we we want you to be condemned. Pilate, the the Roman governor, he said, no, I don't find any fault in this man. So the Jews say, yeah, but we want you to crucify him. So Pilate says, here, I'll take him back here and and we'll make sure to to, to beat him really well. So they do. Flesh is flying off Jesus' bones and they do that. But the Jews, they, they weren't satisfied. They said, no, we want you to crucify him. So essentially, not much longer after that, Jesus uh, goes and they, they take these, they take these uh, thorns and they, they like fold them up into a crown. I went to Israel about four years ago and I saw those, um, those, those thorns and they're, they're longer than my fingers. They're super, super long. And they fold that into a crown and they just like press that on his head. Because they're making fun of him, they're saying, you're king of the Jews, we'll, we'll, we'll call you a king. And they, they press that on his head. They, they make this little plaque that says, uh, here is the king of the Jews. And they put that above him when they raise him up and when they, they crucify him. And every um, thing that Jesus felt while he was on the cross suffering, it wasn't just from physical pain that he was suffering from. But every guilty feeling that you have ever experienced, Jesus felt. Every uh, piece of anxiety that has led you to or almost to depression, Jesus was feeling. Every fear that you've ever experienced, Jesus felt. Times when you have felt um, like nobody loves you, when you have no relationship that's good, Jesus ultimately felt that. And he did that. And he would go to that place, and he would suffer, and he would essentially die hanging on that cross, So that we who are just like Zacchaeus, people who are are liars, people who are thieves, people who uh, don't deserve anything, would have an opportunity to be saved, to have an opportunity to have a relationship with the one true God. The difference is that Jesus, uh, he didn't just stay dead three days later. He came back to prove he has power over death, something that none of us have power over. And what Jesus wants you to know this morning is simply this. He chooses you. It doesn't matter if you sit in here and and you you think you don't deserve it. He he chooses you. He died for you. If you sit in here and, and, and you think you do deserve it, he still chooses you. 
But you've got to come to that place where you realize, no, I don't. But there's such a good God who, is, who died for me to take my penalty so that I wouldn't have to suffer. So as the band comes, I think they're going to come and lead us. In one last song, here's, here's what my desire for us is this morning. If you sit in here and you know Christ, then I want you to reflect on that great gospel. I want you to reflect on the fact that Jesus died in your place and for you despite who you are and despite what you've done. Maybe you sit in here and you're a follower of Christ and there is something that you need to repent of and you need to turn from. Then take this opportunity to do so. You can do that at your seat. You can do that by coming forward. Either way. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Christ. And you want to experience freedom from sin. You want to experience forgiveness for the wrong things you've done. You can know him this morning. It takes nothing more than understanding that you are a sinner, understanding that he is a great savior.